As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Zippel Jr. Hello, everyone. This is Don Furrix, guest host of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast, the Extraordinary Leader Series. And today with me, I have Keith Hawk, who I'm really excited about interviewing. Keith and I go back a while, and I just think of the world of him as a leader, and I can't wait to tell you a little bit about him. This series has been designed to help the listener to really understand what leadership is all about and to kind of hear from personal experience what people have done to develop their skills to become an extraordinary leader. So today, Keith, I hope you'll help me uncover some really great tidbits of wisdom. <laughs> we'll do our best, Don. We have to strive for extraordinary. We'll work for that. Yes, that's a great idea. I wonder where you got that from. <laughs> Let me tell everybody a little bit about your background. Keith Hawk is a lifelong sales professional who has spent most of his career in senior sales leadership roles, most notably at a decade plus experience as a senior vice president of sales for a thousand plus Salesforce in a major information company. For those of you that know LexisNexis, that's where Keith spent most of his career. He is a frequent speaker when we have speaking engagements. Maybe that'll come back, right? <laughs> Eventually, we'll be doing live speaking engagements again, yes. <laughs> We're hoping he'll continue to be a frequent speaker on topics including consultative selling, leadership, principal negotiations, incentive comp plans, and performance metrics. He is the co-author of the popular business book, Get Real Selling. If you want a good book on our great book on sales and consultative approach to sales, you need to get this book. It is a quick, beautiful, easy to understand book that allows people to really figure out how to come across to clients in this day and age without putting their agenda first. So it comes at it from a consultative standpoint. So Keith is a speaker and an author, but he also has a couple very famous sons, AJ. His son played uh, in the National Football League and his son Ryan is a podcaster who's got a tremendous amount of following right now, right? Because there's so many people listening to those podcasts. Yeah, the learning leader, that's his show. Yes. It's and so some of us him. get famous on our own efforts, but you're getting more famous based on your son's efforts. <laughs> <laughs> I am no longer the lead dog in the Hawk family, right? Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> It's appropriate at this point, yes. It's all good. It's all good. So leading an organization as large as you did at LexisNexis, over a thousand people, I mean, I kind of forgot that until I reread the introduction. It's like, that's a big deal. That's a complex job. That's not done without a host of really good managers and leaders around you, right? Could you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. When you say there's a thousand person sales force, and our time there, it was yeah anywhere from as low as 800 to as many as 1,500. But one thing I would describe, first of all, is the job has no boundaries. There are no things that are not part of your job description, to be honest, when you're dealing with that many individuals. But to your point, it clearly requires first-line managers that are spectacular to be successful in the long term because you can have all the great ideas, the great strategies, the great business plans. But if people that are working directly with the professionals that are out there working with your customers aren't in alignment, don't have shared values as an organization, that you have kind of a chaotic thing. I don't like chaos. 
And so I felt like it's always important. The most important decisions we made were who are the people we hire, particularly people that are in those first line management jobs. And if it's a broader organization like we had, levels above them as well. I know sales development, sales training, sales compensation were all critical parts of the mix in terms of high performance. And you were able to drive your organization to success so many years in a row. But it also occurs to me as we're talking that developing leaders had to be one of your primary focuses. Was that something that was always on top of your mind? It was. It was. And one of the things that I think can give a leader the greatest joy in their work aside from just the organization succeeding, is to see people work their way through the organization, work their way up the organization. And we get this by, first of all, hiring great, and then providing learning opportunities, mentoring opportunities, the chance for great people to work with each other and become a great teammate first, and then hopefully become a great leader. But uh, I was particularly thrilled when we had people that literally started as an entry-level position and worked their way to Mm. manager, director, vice presidential levels and beyond in our organization. And we had a lot of that in my heyday, LexisNexis, no doubt about it. So they are what I'm most proud of, to be honest. That's wonderful. At some point in your journey, you probably were getting some feedback that you were pretty good at it. Like, you know, you were able to hold the job for a long time. Not everyone is able to do that as an SVP of sales which is, first of all, uh, an accomplishment in itself. But how'd you find out that you were pretty good? I mean, what was the early indication that you might be good at leading? It was very incremental, Don. I didn't go into the business world with any kind of a blueprint to end up where I ended up. In fact, it was almost the opposite. I was hired into my original sales job with AT&T completely by accident. I had taking the law school admission test. I was prepared to go to Case Western University and study law. I thought that sounded good, like a good thing to do. (laughs) I was prepared to join the military to have it help pay for my law school in that way. And I had it all lined up. And then this company called AT&T called my home at Ohio University uh, the last quarter when I was about to graduate and uh, asked if I'd come in and interview. And it is literally the only interview I took on campus. I ended up somehow going through their gauntlet of hiring process and made it into AT&T and was stationed in Dayton, Ohio to be a salesperson, a first-line salesperson in their Dayton, Ohio office of a company then called Ohio Bell that was a part of the AT&T Corporation and discovered I enjoyed it. I enjoyed working with customers and had some success in selling some great products they had to some very interesting customers. One of my greatest customers was a fledgling young company called LexisNexis that was that time called something else. And they hired me. And that's where I got my first opportunity really to lead. It was a growing business and on its way up. And if you did good things, they tended to notice that because they needed you as they were growing. And so I grew with the business and I went through jobs as a technical support manager with a group of amazing professionals. I was seeing customers that I led and participated in that team and then just moved through a variety of roles to the point that I ended up in the mid-90s in a VP position and later a senior VP position um, leading the United States sales force of LexisNexis legal and government markets. And so I guess there was no roadmap. In fact, I've been in speeches before where I stand up in front of a group that 
asked me about career path and I typically put up a map of, I think it's a, a city in Korea, their subway system that's all sort of intersecting lines. And I said, if you want a career map, uh, this is kind of the way it works. My view on progressing in an organization is less about having the perfect plan of how I'm going to get from point A to point Z, but rather to be what I call audible ready, right? In football, quarterback gets the line of scrimmage and he sees something very different than he'd expected when he got the original play call. So he calls an audible. The same can happen in our career. I think it's important to constantly develop ourselves, our strengths, our skills, work on our weaknesses, understand what we're good at, be a great teammate, and then when opportunity arises, be the kind of person that people want to work with and seek out. And if anything, that's what just kind of naturally occurred. I, at that time, was not a deep reader in business books. I was just scrambling to do my job. And but through time, I learned some of those things the hard way, right? Learning by doing. Did you start out as a good leader? Can you recall those early jobs in management? Was it hard for you? I know the reason I ask, I imagine a lot of our listeners are wondering, like, did it just come easy? And were you always good at it because you had the skill sets or were you pretty raw when it started? There was not much of a map for leadership either. The training that I was given when I was advanced to my first leadership job was essentially to learn how to fill out an expense report and approve it for others and to do that kind of stuff. Paperwork, very little about the skills for the job. And so that's when I started my quest for knowledge a little bit to understand how they do it when they do things well. And I started reading and studying a bit more at that time. But I guess I was a bit more by the numbers back in those days. I would line up what is everything that has to happen that's important and then think about in my daily and weekly planning, okay, what are the things that have to get done for us to be successful? Who's going to do them? Let's make sure that we all know what we're doing and then off we go. That early kind of intuitiveness uh, led me to some useful habits later on because I've always kind of held to the point of view that if people in their jobs understand with vivid clarity what's expected of them, and they are given constant communication and feedback, not only about how they're doing, but about how their colleagues are doing and how we as an organization are progressing, then you have a pretty good chance for them to be successful. But the more people are uncertain or even worse, kept in the dark about what's going on in the business, around the business, the less chance I think they have of being successful. So to me, if there was anything that was intuitive, it was I had always known I like to know where I stand and I like to know what my role is and enjoyed knowing what those around me are doing as well. And so I communicated in that way and planned in that way. And I just kept to that as I went. And so if you ask any of the people that ever worked directly for me, if you ask them what was most important to me that they do as a leader, they would probably say something along the lines of, give a vividly clear picture of what success looks like to each and every employee for not just the company, but for their specific role. And I held to that pretty firmly because if you do that well, we can understand the other business challenges, but as long as everybody says, this is what I do every day and I can be excited about it, then I think we're on a pretty good run. Communication, communication, communication. I didn't know we were going to talk about this, but I did happen to ask one of the guys that worked for you to give me some feedback. Actually, I have more than just one person, but let me just read this one line because it's exactly what you said. This person said, there are few better communicators than Keith. 
whether in a large audience, one-to-one or written, Keith's messages were clear and motivating. I appreciate that. That's That's just what you said. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Donnie, I hadn't planned on bringing this out either, but it's another thing that you remind me. One thing I learned that perhaps made things happen better for me than some, there is a disproportionate view of how good you are Mm. as a professional if you can stand in front of a room and A, give a speech effectively, but I think even more importantly, B, be able to interact and respond when challenged, whether that's challenges from the customer, challenges from a senior leader above you, but be able to hold it together, understand what's coming at you, and give a thoughtful and reasonable response. I have learned if anybody's ever given me any credit for being good at something, it tended to be those kinds of situations. And third, and I think still important, probably more important than ever, the ability to be exceptional in your written communication Mm -hmm. is also key because let's think about how we communicate as leaders. Probably the most notable are things like electronic mail, even now text messaging, and things like getting on Zoom calls like we are today, essentially. And then much less often, standing up in front of an audience in an auditorium, perhaps in front of a customer in a customer situation. If you can stand up and communicate and take the punches and hang in there and be reasonable and thoughtful, then people tend to say, wow, hmm, maybe they can do some other things if they can do this. I learned that over and over. If you demonstrate those capabilities, you tend to have a better chance to prosper than if you just have what I would call product knowledge or terms and conditions knowledge, things like that. You need that stuff too. But if you can't communicate under the heat of the moment, Mm-hmm. effectively, then you're probably going to be challenged as a leader. I hope the listeners heard that word you use, disproportionately. In, in other words, the skill isn't as hard as the credit you're going to get when you develop the skill. So if you're going to develop a skill, communication in the way that you talked about communication, not just the overall skill of communication, but being able to do it live, written, and especially in difficult circumstances when there's going to be some pushback, some resistance. And in essence, that's what great leaders do is they pull people through the difficult circumstances. They help people follow through on needed change. They help people do things that they won't want to do on their own. And I think sometimes we underestimate how challenging that can be if you're not a good communicator. So I think you're really onto something. I hope the listeners are getting everything they can out of that. I've stood in front of many groups of employee groups, occasional customer groups, and others, where I'll say, think of the greatest leader you ever had mm-hmm. that you know or have known. Don't give me a name, I'll say, and then I'll go, let's board some of your characteristics that make you say they're the greatest. And almost always, they talk about communication skills. Almost always, no, always, they talk about trust and integrity. Mm. And so I think being a great communicator can help you validate that you're trustworthy, validate that you're a person of integrity, because it's tough to lie. It's tough to fake sincerity. With repeated exposures, especially. I had a guy one time ask me, how do I appear more sincere (laughs) to an audience? And I said, be more sincere. (laughs) Come on. And so um, I really do believe that, Don. In fact, early in my career, I felt kind of bad because in college, I was not a business major. I majored, as it happened, communication. I thought I was going to be a sportscaster. And that didn't happen. But when I got into the business world, 
I felt like I had one hand tied behind my back because I hadn't taken accounting, I hadn't taken economics, marketing, management, any of the classic business courses. And so I was already a manager when I started working on my MBA at the University of Dayton. And I found that if I had to do it all over again, I'd probably do it in the same order. I'd have the communication background heavy early and get some of the business skills later because the communication background served me better. Interesting. Catch up with the business skills. Yeah. We just had a guest on that actually had a PhD in philosophy and he became a vice president of Procter and Gamble. And, and to your point, I think there's something that we need to say to our listeners, like you don't have to have a business background to be a great leader. In fact, you don't even have to start there. And as you said, maybe it's even better for you if you don't. Well, yeah, I, the other side of it, many people get their master's degrees after they've been in the workforce. In fact, I think at Harvard, they forced that. You can't go back to get your MBA at Harvard until you've been in the world after an undergrad for at least two or three years. At least I know it used to be that way. I think that's excellent guidance because it will be more important to you after you have business experience to go get these accounting, finance, marketing, management, et cetera, skills later. Right. So I don't regret anymore that I wasn't a business undergrad. Good for you. I didn't think you would. <laughs> One of the thoughts that I have from a previous conversation, we've talked about the challenge of organically learning from what's happening to you and around you and that in your career, sometimes you have a good boss and sometimes you don't. And a lot of us really lament those times where we're working for a poor leader and it creates a lot of stress and tension and anxiety in our lives. And maybe we get so frustrated we want to leave our company and I'm just curious about your thinking again about, you know, can you learn from poor leaders and the good leaders and how do you organically pull all that together so that your development can take place as a process or at least an informal process to help you become a better leader? What are your thoughts based on your experience? You learn from both, right? I'm not sure if you learn more from a good leader or a bad leader because some of the bad leadership things tend to be more memorable, more searing, mm -hmm. more painful, and thus perhaps more instructive. So you learn from both. And I think any person with their eyes wide open going into a career should understand that we would always like to work for people that are incredible. Sometimes we don't, right? And sometimes we don't. So in those situations, then let's just learn. Right? We'll do our best to hang in there and we'll just learn. But I've certainly learned from great ones and from not great ones and appreciate all of those experiences because they are what add up to what you become. Yeah. But the great ones though, to me, the thing that always came through was we had trust between us. One of my favorite, I guess I'll call it a quasi business book is the speed of trust mm -hmm. by the younger Covey. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I love about that book, the speed of trust is essentially things can happen so much more seamlessly, quickly, when there is trust up and down the organization, because we don't have to spend so much time vetting things. For example, having constant reviews of our success to make sure that everybody's staying on track, validating that everyone is, quote, doing their job. If we could spend more time focusing on the outward business challenge that we're trying to attack and less time focused on making sure each other's doing what we're supposed to do, then we have a much better chance to operate quickly and much more effectively. And so I really summarize my greatest leaders did just a couple of things. One, they were ultimately trustworthy. And two, they were available. They were available. They say one of the greatest abilities is availability, right? And I worked for a great guy named Fred Brooks. And I 
vividly remember the first day I worked for him when he became my new manager long ago, back in AT&T days. He sat down in front of myself and the other six or seven people that were on this team, and he turned his two-page calendar that had two months on it, turned that calendar around to us, and he said, I want each of you to put down the two days that I'm going to be with you over the next 60 days, and I'll be with you all day, both days. And that was new to me. And at first, I was a little uptight about it, but then I came to understand once I spent time with this fellow, all he cared about was A, learning who I am, what I'm about, how I operate, B, understanding the challenges I face, and then finally C, how could he possibly take obstacles out of my path so that I could run as fast and effectively as possible? He saw that as his job. And I think in, uh, you know, my family is big in the football world, or at least the football has been good to our family. One thing I've heard my kids talk about often about great coaches is I say, what does a great coach do most of all? And they've always said, he or she puts me into a position to be successful. Mm. And so that's really what our job is as leaders. Am I putting my people into positions to be successful? And so whether it's training or developing ideal things like managing territories that people work in, better job descriptions, even better ways to compensate them, whatever it might be, what can I do to knock down obstacles and let them just run as free and fast as possible? It sounds like, and I don't want to label this just to have a label, but it sounds to me like you're defining a version of servant leadership where the leader puts their time, their energy, their interest behind the needs and interests and desires of the people that work for them to make them better, to be the best that they can be in their current role. Do you subscribe to that or is that, I know some people don't like the terminology servant leader. Uh, I'm only slightly discomfort with servant, but I am very comfortable with the concept that essentially says, get over yourself. It's not about you. It's about them. And if they are successful, you are successful. If they are not, I don't care how awesome you think you are, you are not successful either. And so that really is your job to put them into positions to be successful, eliminate obstacles from their path, and constantly keep helping they, and by extension, you get better. I'm just curious again, looking back to being a young manager getting started, was that clear to you from day one or did you have to see that maybe you were a bit more selfish back in the early days and that you were getting in the way of being able to do what you just said, being able to serve others' needs. Do you recall how that? Yeah. In the early days, I don't think I was self-confident enough to be selfish. (laughs) I think (laughs) I wasn't. I was wary of failing and I wanted to do everything I could to prevent that. And the other advantage I had in my first leadership job I was also still an individual contributor. So I still had this effective territory and we built a team around my territory and added people and we all went out and essentially served the same function. So I was more like a corporal working with the troops than being some general above the troops, so to speak. And so I was very keyed in on what were their challenges because they were my challenges as well. And then from then on, I always kept hold of that, never lose sight of what they do every day, never lose sight of what they do for a living, and you'll probably stay on the right path. I know that you've talked about Fred Brooks before and that he made a profound impact on you. Can I give you some more feedback? Sure. (laughs) Here's what somebody told me outside of Keith knowing that I was asking about this, and it ties in exactly what he's talking about. This is how Keith is described. He is balanced and non-impulsive. He operates on a basis of respect and trust. 
and he can be candid and honest without becoming demeaning or personally critical. I thought when I read that the first time, I said, that's exactly what you do. And so to the point of your being authentic about that style that you just talked about, sometimes we talk about style, and I think it's inauthentic, but it's just a good idea. But you live that. You've embraced that. I, I think that's why people really enjoy working for you and with you is because you you are so clearly dedicated to that outcome that there's no guessing that there's any other hidden agenda. I certainly appreciate that feedback from whomever gave it to you. They said it better than I could have imagined it being said, so that's great. But I just think that maybe the way I got to it was I don't think I came into the business world as a surefire, blue blood, went to the right school, took all their... I wasn't that kind of... I had to more scramble my way to get there. And then once I got there, I realized, wow, this is a really exciting thing I do for a living. And I appreciate it and I enjoy it and I like it. And so I have also this belief, <laughs> slightly go off course, that it's the duty of the leader to be in a good mood. And I honestly feel like for everyone that works under your charge, it is much more effective for them to see that their leader truly enjoys what they do, what we do for a living, shows up every day with optimism, good cheer, so to speak. And I don't mean uh, Mr. Sunshine all the time, but I do mean I am in the optimism business. It really is important for us always to see that there's another way, another way to succeed. There's not just one way. And though we will be challenged without a doubt, we also know that we will find a way. And so as long as you carry that optimism and that freshness, which some people would interpret as being in a good mood, then I think they will continue to pay attention to you and say, okay, I can still work in this person's organization. That's wonderful. I know probably a lot of years you were, you had a sales force in an industry that wasn't growing very fast, if at all, right? And you were expected to get more share because they were going to live with no growth that you had to deliver on a pretty big sales goal for the company. And that was going to be very ominous. It wasn't like the whole industry was growing at the rate that you had to produce your sales year over year, right? That's right. That's right. And I was always cognizant that probably the most fired and fireable position in a corporation is the head of sales. <laughs> because let's face it, if things aren't going well and we're not, quote, driving enough revenue in the organization, the easiest person to replace is the one that's in charge of sales. And so perhaps one of my greatest accomplishments was in keeping a senior position in sales leadership with one company for quite a long time. So I'm very, very sensitive to the idea that sales is a difficult profession and uh, we always have to constantly boil down, like I've said often, what do we do for a living? What is the value we provide to our customers and why should they want to see us? And so mm. anyway, I'll pause at that unless you redirect me, but no, no, you did a great uh, job. I think you're exactly right. I love your energy comment. And I agree with you too, that if the leader doesn't bring that optimism, whatever energy they bring just flows down cascades throughout the entire organization. So if you're not bringing a high level positivity, guess what? Whatever you bring is going to get cascaded throughout the organization. And it just has you know, a tremendous effect on everything that goes on in the organization. Yeah, yeah. As a leader of leaders, and don't know how many managers you have, maybe you could tell listeners that, but what were some things that looking back, you know, help your leaders become better? Was it your one-on-one -on -one coaching with them? Was it your 
observing them do leadership? Was it training? What kind of things? And then this kind of gets us into the topic of how do I develop myself? But how did you develop your leaders looking back on your experiences? Most of my, I guess the highlight parts of my career, the leaders that reported to me were the typical role was like vice president, Atlantic region, vice president, Southern region. So it's kind of a geographic designation. Sure. At our peak, we had about a dozen of those roles. Okay. And each of them, thinking about my numbers properly, each of them would have had somewhere in the area of six to eight managers reporting to them that were first line managers and maybe a couple of administrative kind of managerial roles reporting to them. And so it was very important for those two levels of leadership to be in lockstep in terms of what is our mission, what are our plans to accomplish that mission. And so from a communication standpoint, it was always about the mission, right? These are the things that are important. And I looked at my job back in those days as a kind of the way a political candidate would look at their platform of priorities. So if you were a political candidate, you might have something like you would say, here's where we stand on infrastructure. Here's where we stand on healthcare. Here's where we stand on military. And so in my world, it was, here's where we stand on strategy of our business. Here's where we stand on delivering product success. Here's where we stand on customer service. Here's how we compensate people. Here's how we divide territories. Whatever type of role you have in an organization, you need to kind of have your platform of priorities and then develop your specific plans under each of those. And the way that I felt like we got good detail on those plans was one, we would develop the platform of priorities together, that senior leadership team, and then individuals in that leadership team would have responsibilities for a sector of one of those priorities, right? So they'd dive deeper in one of those priorities and really help flesh it out. I'd have to be cognizant of all of them, but some of them would be deeper than I would on some of those priorities. And then we have the job of bringing that information together saying, how do we most effectively take this out to our first line managers who essentially have to become expert in all of the priorities, at least those that directly affect them and their people. And so we would have quarterly meetings, where we would dive deep, try to get creative, also get to know each other better constantly, develop more trust constantly. We would have a weekly top priorities. Here's what's great. Here's what's awful kind of conversations where we would real quick hit, just bring in, here's things that are happening on a regular basis. I believe in having a one-on-one either once a month or twice a month with every person. Certainly you're going to talk more often than that, but have dedicated time on the calendar that we know we're going to talk just about you and your job and what you face. So I know I'm never going to go more than a couple of weeks without having that kind of deep conversation about my job with the person that I report to. And I encourage them to have similar kind of communication downward and beyond in their organization. And so it was about communication first and foremost. We would occasionally have training. So we would train on I hate the term soft skills because I don't, I don't think there's anything harder than being good at soft skills. But in terms of understanding how we communicate effectively with our customers, which was typically around, I think every single individual should be an expert questioner, not just salespeople, any job. Can I question effectively? Can I take on information? Can I follow up? Can I really get to the knit of an issue, right, with my questioning skills so that then I can use my problem-solving skills to try to find an answer for that problem, be it solving a problem for a customer or doing something internally in the organization. 
And then developing presentation skills, the ability to share that information, to advocate for a position. You and I, back long ago in our shared history, Don, both, I think, taught a course where we talked about advocacy as a very important business skill. So that kind of stuff. And on a regular basis, you, of course, have to do the meat and potatoes of here's what our products are. Here's how they work. Here's the advantages they give to our customers for using them. So everybody's got to have that. And back again in our, some of our shared history, I think they used the bicycle model to say that the back wheel is things like product knowledge. Here's what our product does. Here's how it works. Pricing, terms and conditions. That's all the back wheel of the bike that always goes straight. Remember, the front wheel of the bike steers and makes massive differences on where you go and how you go based on how you steer the bike. Those are what some people call the soft skills. And so how well you advocate for your position, how well you ask questions, how well you handle objections. Those are front wheel skills. So to bring you all the way back to the bicycle model, I'll, uh, <laughs> I'll pause there. I love redirect. it. No, no, I think you're on to something. So it sounds to me, to kind of summarize it for our listeners, good leadership has a lot to do with good management in the realm of you got to provide the right level of communication to the group, to individuals. You have to provide the amount of training, right amount of planning, the right amount of uh, execution, setting expectations. There's a lot of work that goes into setting up a good sales organization and you executed flawlessly on it. And that created trust because people knew exactly what to expect. They knew what your expectations of performance were for them. And they wanted to meet that because you held them in high regard and they knew that they would be held accountable. Is that a fair way to sum it up or am I over generalizing? It was all correct except flawless, Don. It was not flawless, right? (laughs) (laughs) I learned from my mistakes much more than I learned from my successes. So, uh, of course, we fall down along the way, of course. But if you're truly flawless, you're not really pressing the edges Mm. of what's possible enough. So, I think some of the reasons we fail are pretty good reasons. We're trying really hard. We're trying things we've never tried before. So, I guess what Tom Peters would say is fail fast, right? Fail fast if you're going to fail. But go try things and then readjust. But otherwise, yeah, I think you're on the point. I have to give you one more bit of feedback. This is my gift to you. This is a really good one. Keith's intent was always positive. He is a well-liked leader, but that did not mean he was easy. Keith would push you 100% and challenge your thinking to get to the best answer. However, it was so clear as to why he was pushing. It was only to help you be successful. His intent was always to make things better that, oh, gosh, is that not the essence of a leader? And that's written from somebody's heart right to your heart. So I hope you accept that as a gift because, wow, that's just I do. Thank you. Beautiful. Thank you. I remember we would have meetings sometimes where we had really difficult information to share, tough challenge in the business, whatever that challenge might be. And I would start off the meetings oftentimes saying, okay, everybody, this is a big boy, big girl meeting. <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to talk about little things. Today's big stuff and hitch up our pants because we got to hold on. We've got some tough things coming. But I think having the direct and honest approach, even if it's challenging, is what people really appreciate. Yeah, and I think you did that very well. I'm trying to think of this crazy time that we're going through with so much uncertainty. And today, you've done a great job talking about the power of effective communication. You've talked about the need for trust. You've talked about the foundation of developing organizational structures such that people know what to do and how to do it. And they have consistent meanings and communication. 
part of what I think is going to change as a post-COVID response is the way that we train and develop our organizations, probably the way that we even meet with our organizations has already shifted and may not come back right away. Give the listeners some of your thoughts about what do you think they should be thinking about either for their own development or for their company's development? I mean, what would be some ideas that you've had or you've heard that might be helpful to them since we know that things will definitely be different? Well, you're on a topic that's important to me. As we come out of, we're not really coming out of COVID-19. We're just going to a different phase, I guess. I wish we were coming out of it. Yeah. And so I do a regular video podcast, I'll call it, for a client where we interview a business leader and we're talking about this very subject. What's going to change? How are you going to handle this? What's important? And I think we really have to, as leaders first, think about what's important to the people in the organization. One, they want to feel safe. And safety is not just physical safety. Safety is mental safety. Safety is job. Is my job safe? Both in terms of lasting and actual performing the job. And we're moving to a time where we don't know if this is a permanent change where people are going to be wearing masks in and out of buildings. I suspect that's not permanent. But other things like will high percentages of an organization work from home versus in the past, much more traditionally, people would come into an office to do their jobs. But we've discovered some things. Also, do we meet physically rather than virtually in the future to the same degree that we did before? I suspect the answer will clearly be, though they're not always joyful to be a part of, the group video conference is probably going to be quite a substitute for the group in-person gathering. And that, there's some good things about that probably for some and some bad things about that, but that's a reality of life. But it appears we're on a long, slow entrance back into normalcy that may never be the old normal again. And so I think as individual performers in an organization, I have to think about what's important to me and does the company that I work for offer those things that are important to me in terms of safety, compensation, is the job going to be here tomorrow? Who are the customers we're working with? Who are the colleagues we're working with? And even where is the job located? I have to make that evaluation as the individual and at the other side of it, as the leader of the organization, my priority list is greatly expanded. I now have a completely new set of things that weren't invisible in the past, but certainly weren't at the top of the priority list. When we literally talk about the physical safety of our employees Hmm. and what are the things we can do to make them have the greatest chance to work in a healthful environment and be successful and be motivated and be excited and work well together. So it's a completely new time, Don, that I, none of us have seen to any to this degree before. 9-11 was a horrible thing that happened, mm-hmm. of course. And we learned there were some permanent changes that took place. For example, if you're going into an office building in New York City, you no longer just walk to the elevator and go up to meet your colleague or client. You stop at security and they go through a bit of a check to make sure you're who you say you are and that you do indeed have an appointment to be there. So that's just one example from that tragedy. This tragedy has tentacles that seem to spread out more broadly and take longer for us to kind of figure out. And so it's going to be a really interesting time to see how we get back on that on-ramp to whatever the new normalcy or new normal is. 
I would think what you said earlier still applies in a pretty important way, maybe even more important, the element of trust. Personally experienced such a difficult time being able to connect through Zoom in the same way that I connect with people when they're face-to-face. I don't feel their energy in the same way. I can't see their eyes as clearly. I can't look in and hear their heart as much. There seems to be something in the way. Maybe I don't know how to do it yet, but I struggle with that. And I think, therefore, then trust becomes even a bigger deal because I can't communicate in the same way that I was used to communicating. Can you relate to that and any insights? Oh, yeah. I mean, I felt like I made my living on in-person gatherings. And so I hear you 100% on that. And I feel like our job in the future will be more about striking the right balance. Mm-hmm. I do not believe in most corporate settings or governmental settings that we can be a purely virtual company. I know there are small startups that operate in that fashion, but when you get to a certain scale, size and scale, there are times that we need to bring the team together physically. And I think we will still continue to make those decisions. But the days of flying to New York every other week to have kind of normal meetings and then fly home and spend nights in hotels and the expense as well as some of the other things that exposes you to, those types of activities are going to be really carefully evaluated. And going forward, we're going to modify how we operate. We're not going to completely change, but we're going to modify. And our reality is we have to learn to get more comfortable looking at each other on a computer screen rather than across from the desk, across from the table. But perhaps instead of seeing some of our colleagues every day, week, or month, maybe we'll see them every month or quarter. So those are the types of adjustments I clearly expect to happen. Yeah, that's a great point. I've already noticed that some companies I uh, talk to on a Zoom meeting are very collegial and they have a almost kind of a funny way to be with each other, even though it's virtual, and they enjoy it. And then most companies though, are not that. They're stone-faced. You're not sure if they're really fully connected with what's being talked about and whether or not they're happy to be on the call or not happy to be on the call. You know, just tough to read. I think we're going to have to teach everyone how to be on these type of calls and how to be fully engaged and be authentic in this type of era. It's going to be tough. It's so different. And yeah, it's probably one of the biggest leadership challenge that leaders will face, I think, in the coming, especially zero to three years when we're, as we're going through this adjustment period. Good point. And that's what you said you did in your career. Yes, things happen to you. You read and react. You were looking, as you called it, the audible. Okay, I'm at the line of scrimmage of, of my work. I have to figure out what to do now. And I think that's our big challenge for all leaders. Yes. Keith, I'll leave you with this question. Many of the leaders are listening to this series because they're desperate to try to figure out how to improve themselves as a leader. They may not be getting the training from their company. In fact, I think that's going to be one of the things that will be cut very quickly in most organizations. So they'll be left with trying to figure out, what do I do? How do I get better at being a leader? Should I read more books, podcasts? What do I do? Do you have any insights, especially for those that are the next-gen leaders that are trying to figure that out? Yeah. Well, your point's, I think, correct and valid that training, like it or not, is something that gets cut quickly when budgets get cut. Mm. And so I think it will be the truly unusual company that provides all of the training that our people need to be successful in their jobs. So they're going to have to fend for themselves oftentimes, unless they have an exceptional boss, right, who really is looking out for them in a a detailed way like that. So, but 
the good side of that is there has never been a better time in history, I'm quite confident, to get access to information that can help us be effective. There have never been more books written on whatever business topic or interpersonal topic you can imagine than there are right now. They're completely available. They can be downloaded in electronic form, either visual text or audible. As you describe, and we're doing right now, there are podcasts on every topic with hundreds of podcasters per topic. <laughs> and so there's lots of, of information to actually hear from the greats. I mean, when we were coming up in the business world, there's no way that we could hear live from some of the greatest leaders, be they Simon Sinek or Tom Peters or you name it. The business leader, Jim Collins, you would just read their book, right? And maybe pay $100 and go see them speak, you know, once a career. Well, now you can listen to them every week on a podcast or on a radio show. So there's great ability to get at information. And I think the important thing is to develop a small group of mentors and or colleagues that are similarly motivated to you and share information to help each other almost form a cohort together to help each other learn and progress because curiosity, I think, is the key to developing yourself. Be curious, go seek out information to help you, try that information on for size and take some of it and employ it in your work. I love that. That deep curiosity is almost for people like yourself insatiable. That's what I've always loved about your approach to life. You don't get non-curious about anything, I don't think. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Get you I get trouble, tired sometimes. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been wonderful. I said at the beginning of our podcast that I was hoping that it would be at least one thing people would get out of our discussion. I took a lot of notes myself, so I got more than one thing. So you gave me a lot more than I was looking for. But thank you for sharing your insights. I know that some of our listeners might have a question. And if they go if you're trying to get a question to Keith Hawk or myself, go to talentmagnetinstitute.com backslash podcast, and you can leave a question. We'll respond to that. We'll get back to you, try to help you as much as we can. Our interest is just to help more leaders be more successful in leadership because we know it's one of the most complex and challenging things that you do in a career. So we would love for you to be successful. Keith, anything that you'd like to share with the audience before we sign off? I'm a big fan of everyone's career development, especially this phase in my career where I'm not as focused on my career as I am on others. So people can communicate with me if they like. I'm on LinkedIn, just Keith Hawk on LinkedIn. My Twitter handle is at DKHawk30 for kind of mostly fun stuff, but I occasionally share some things that might be of value from a business perspective. So uh, those are the two places that I can most easily be found electronically for, for direct communication. That's great. So if you would like to reach Keith directly, go through LinkedIn and we'll go from there. We'll sign off for this episode of the Extraordinary Leader Series on Talent Magnet Institute podcast series. Thank you to everyone for being with us today. Have a great day. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is powered by Centennial, a talent strategy and executive search firm, and the Talent Magnet Institute. You can engage with us at Talent Magnet I on Twitter or Talent Magnet Institute on LinkedIn and Facebook. Please communicate by using hashtag Talent Magnet. Find us in your favorite podcast app to subscribe, rate, and leave a review, as well as share with a colleague. 
You can also listen at talentmagnetpodcast.com. Our podcast studio is based in greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We are supported by our listeners, clients, and partners from all over the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by a great team that includes Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, produced by Chris Madine of New Fidelity Studios, and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Madine. And myself, your host, Mike Zippel Jr., Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.